Hello everyone. Welcome to this episode of Red Envelope, our podcast series on rhetoric that focuses on innovation in Asia. Today we have Jean-Yves Leville, the CEO of AgriLedger, a blockchain startup focused on the food supply chain in emerging markets. Jean-Yves and I first met through a program that we at Greenshore's Capital were running for uh, financial inclusion startups. Since then, I've witnessed the progress that Sean Weave and her team have made with an agri-ledger. I'm extremely delighted to have you on the show, Jean Weave. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, okay, so several years in a corporate career, um, then in SaaS startups. Uh, tell us about your journey into agri-ledger. Let's just start with that. Sure. Um, what I've actually had, have had a lot of time for reflection as I traversed the globe sometime and claimed with no access to internet and too tired to look at my laptop and realized that even though I was working in corporate for many years, I was actually the entrepreneur in these organizations. And so my role was to help change the status quo and move us to a new reality. I started uh, every, anywhere from when I was at Chase Manhattan Bank working with large corporate to implement treasury workstation. Uh, until then, people were using Excel type um, typewriters and uh, calculators to actually calculate their position. And what my role was to was to bring in this new technology, which was centralized um, in a time also decentralized to allow them to get faster information about their treasury works, their treasury, and be able to understand where the financials were. So I did that with uh, Chase, with uh, large corporates such as BMW, IBM, you name it. Uh, and one of the clients that they sent me to support was Hewlett Packard during their divestment of Agilent. So every time uh, what I would look is what is the situation on the ground? How do we streamline and then now use technology to basically get to removing the waste from um, working in Treasury at HP. I then went to work with their large corporates doing BPO, then got a call for GE, uh, worked with uh, the streamlining of that global Treasury, everything from document management to setting up uh, new ways of making payments um, to where we even, I ended up helping what ended up being the winning of a SWIFT program whereby all statements were now coming in um, centrally instead of coming in by paper. So always looking at innovation. So fast forward, uh, I went to RBS, did an, a large implementation of SCP core banking. And again, that was taking what were 50-year-old system to a current day status and how do we design without actually designing just for organization but also for growth. And finally, that led me to identity management with Identrust. And from there, I understood, well, might as well do it for myself instead of keep doing it for the large corporate and started the journey into entrepreneurship uh, with AgriLedger. And for me, that was when I discovered blockchain. That's interesting. It, it's quite a journey, right? You know, whenever we talk to people um, that started from corporate and, and how they ended up in, in startups is always a, a very interesting story. I do remember, re recall reading um, about you and about what you've been doing um, 
you had quite an interesting start in how you ended up founding um, Acroledger and, and your journey into blockchain. Yeah, um, it was first week actually in the new job at uh, Identrust. And actually I had been intimated to blockchain a couple of weeks before because when SAP took me out for dinner for uh, the going out, they started telling me about this thing called Bitcoin and that was 20 15, and one of the salesperson was talking about how he was mining. And I was like, eh. And I was trying to figure out how to go about mining and da-da-da. And I thought it was too complex. And then my boss calls me and she says, uh, can you go up to South Africa next week? There is some work to be done around uh, this thing called blockchain. And where we... and. Uh, where we thought that the play was, was around identity. There still is a play around identity. And the play that we suggested, I still don't see exactly happening. I see the peripherals of it. But she asked me to go down to South Africa. And as such, I had to prepare myself for Alton blockchain. Um, that's when I got to meet uh, the team at Stellar. I actually got to meet R3 when R3 was only nine individuals at the time. And we spent three days um, speaking about the opportunities of using that technology for good in the community in Africa. Um, so my summer was then spent getting to know everybody that there was in uh, London. And at the time, the scene was very, very near. You know, you were getting maybe one a blockchain conference every three months and everything else was behind closed door and people were trying to figure out how to and that made it was very interesting to be able to talk to people who were in the peripheral or those who were the libertarian and really start to understand the possibility and for me what I thought was the most important about the technology wasn't the financial uh, transactioning that were, you know, like the Bitcoin transactioning, but rather the information that you could start really getting in an immutable fashion to then create that straight through processing whereby you didn't need to go and recheck. And that was much more valuable than the money that you would end up paying later on. So that's how the thinking started. And then a friend called me and said, um, we're starting a company in... India, what do you know about blockchain distributed ledger technology? I'm like, ha, 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 ha. let me let you know, because I had already done about six months of learning. And so they asked me to become uh, the CTO, CEO sorry, of the first blockchain uh, consulting firm, which was created in India. Um, unfortunately, since I was the only one Unsure, it made it very difficult because they would do their own thing throughout the day, and then I'd come back and say, well, "Why did you do that?" And finally, um, also where we were having a fundamental disagreement is, I was saying we should not be concentrating on the finance uh, transactions. We should not be looking at just insurance. We should be looking at what are the transactions that drives the payment in insurance, and then that's the value added. When I was talking about that four years ago, people were not really getting it. And I'm so happy to see that we've moved away from just looking at the Bitcoin and the Ethereum to actually starting to talk about the processes which drive the transactions. 
that's uh, that's some amazing insights there, Jean. Um, one of the uh, key things that we we uh, talk about here in um, rhetoric and and red and blue especially is um, China, right? So um, in your in your uh, journeys and travels, I understand you've done quite a lot of business um, in China, especially through agriculture. Um, so there was there was a, this article that I published on um, on LinkedIn a few days back, which which provides the stats on what happens in China every 60 seconds. Um, things like how many WeChat articles come out, how many searches are happen on Baidu, and 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 so on and so forth. And someone pings me and asks me, uh, "Okay, do you have similar stats for India?" And I'm like, "You you you can't compare the two. China is a world in itself. It's it's special. It's <laughs> separate." So um, so. Just on that note, you, you, you gave us a lot of um, in, insights on your journeys in blockchain, but uh, can, you, can you give us uh, your thoughts on China as an innovation ecosystem and, and how blockchain kind of works within that ecosystem? Um, so China is a very interesting um, dialectic. Uh, there is a lot happening in the blockchain space, but it's two different facets. So you have what's being called blockchain, which is really nothing else but tokens. Um, and you have very unsophisticated, in my point of view, uh, quote-unquote investors, so people who are buying into a possibility. And because of the way sometimes the token economy has to work, instead of building the um the owners of the project sometimes spend money trying to keep the token going so that in the false hope that the token will go up enough to yield them the funding that's necessary. So that's one side, and I, I would almost call it the somewhat ugly side of China. But on the other side, there is actually a lot of development being done, which is spearheaded by the government, because in 2017, uh, Chairman Z actually spoke about the technology, and in ways he said that he didn't like the token chasing, but he saw the technology, the traceability, the transparency of the technology allowing them to really um, do better. Uh, so in the food industry, this is very much needed because whereby in the West we talk about food safety in terms of quality, that's a very big problem in China that they're trying to eradicate. So uh, there is a lot of research being done through quasi-government institution. And in China form, we don't see it until such time as it is ready. Uh, one of the challenges that obviously there is with uh, the blockchain technology sometimes is transparency also means totally open, which means that you have open secrets. Given that the fact that the, um, the, the society is already used to having all the information spied upon, they are not going to react, they're not reacting badly to it. Uh, so we will see a lot of innovation and I expect in a year or two we'll be hearing quite a few things coming out. There's a few labs uh, which are in Shenzhen and in Shanghai, which are working on some pretty exciting. And obviously you have the Tencent and Alibaba work that's also going on. But those are more geared toward uh, their supplier and their supply chain. Um, in, in essence, with China, um, 
I do expect to hear pretty soon also on their how they're going to be dealing with digital currency because obviously they are already digital. Uh, most, you know, cash is not king in China, and I can tell you myself, I have experienced um, the the challenge of having cash in hand. Um, one day I took a cab and I needed to go somewhere, and the cab was 37 yuan, which is probably about four pounds. Um, and I had a 50 pound note and the driver basically when I gave him the money said to me uh, rudely something in Chinese and point and stopped the car and pointed to a store and made me get out, go get change and then bring him back uh, his change because he felt, why wasn't I using WeChat? So that set me on the... Uh, on the task of getting myself a bank account, a proper <laughs> phone number, so that I could have a WeChat account. Because without that, you can't function. And some, you know, it's even down to if you want to buy some fruits in the street. Uh, my favorite picture is this guy selling mangoes and strawberries in the streets of Shenzhen and has a scale with two QR codes, one for Alibaba, and one for ten cents for um, paying him with your wallet. So um, I think that there is a lot to be learned from them, mostly when it comes to digital transformation. And it's at all level. It is not a situation where it is only the youth. It's even the idiom grandma who is paying with her phone. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore and innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. That is fascinating. Um, for the one time um, that I was in China last year, I spent a week in um, Hongzhou, and uh, it, it was it was eye opening, right? It's like as you say, everyone was was operating digital. Um, I got yelled at, but it was it was for a different reason. <laughs> it's more so because I did not understand the language at all, even though I look like a Chinese. I act like a Chinese and it was expected that I should speak Chinese and I didn't. Um, so that, that was, that was interesting, but the, the explosion of digital um, payments is, is always something that's fascinating um, that, um, you know, people ponder, how is it that, that, you know, they could go so fast. And, and I think you, you touch on something that hit, hit a nerve and hit a point that I always agree with too, is a lot of times in the West, you know, when we talk about, well, you know, when it comes to digital adoption, we always look at, it's the youth, it's the millennials, it's the younger generation that we say, you know, they're the ones that's going to adopt digital technology. But then if you look at what's happening in the East, like you say, it's not so much just the younger generations, also the older ones, right? So it, it's... Sometimes I always wonder if it's because we just are biased, right? We, we look at things with, with a sort of lens as we expect things to happen. That's why, you know, we, we make excuses on why the adoption is not as universal in the West as it is in the East. Um, almost feels like that should be a whole different discussion. Um, but let's go back to, to your work at Agriledger. Uh, 
which mm-hmm. is fascinating. One is, you know, the fact that you chose food and agriculture, um, which I, I'm, I'm very curious about because I love food. Um, and I always, you know, you talked about um, transparency and food quality. Um, what other applications, you know, do you guys do? And also with your partnership um, and your work with organizations such as the World Bank, what are some of the satisfying aspects of what you're doing um, and what you find most challenging? Um, so one of so to answer your first question about why food. So when I discovered the technology and I was talking to my partners in India, what I thought was that I wanted to do something that I was passionate about. And to tell the truth, what I'm passionate about is food. Um, the other passion is traveling. And I didn't see how you could actually make a difference in the traveling industry because it is very closed-looped in ways. Um, And instead of being where the airlines are collaborative, I remember years, 20 years ago when you used to travel, if you missed a flight on airline A, they would call down the street to airline B and get you onto the next plane. We've now gone to where they'll make you wait or they'll send you home and they don't care. So that really, um, that used to be when they would use their general ledger because they would run every day uh, which who had flown whom and basically pay each other back. Now they don't do that anymore. And I thought about food and um, having grown up in Haiti and having traveled around the world and seen abject poverty and knowing that people were not starving just because they didn't have the financial means to get access to food. But sometimes the food was right there, but it couldn't get to them because no one knew it was there. So how would you look at the supply chain, how it was broken, and really fix it? And um, this is something that a lot of organizations have been working on for a long time. And I still think that it's still a challenge because you have to convince a lot of people to work together. And that's one of the beauties of the uh, technology, the distributed ledger technology, in that you can maintain your own state of affair and provide information that is necessary to the greater good. And that information will increase around time because when you realize that a data point, if you unmask that data point from your organization to the rest, is going to support your journey or support your financials, then you're more apt to actually open it. Um, so in terms of AgriLedger, it took a while to actually uh, move it in the direction I wanted. And part of that was actually because my thinking was that it had to involve not just me as an organization saying to farmers, would you like to use my software, but having the involvement of government, uh, of financial institutions, and also those who are being termed as the middlemen. And to me, middlemen is really should be the high risk takers. And if you take high risk, you should be rewarded for those risks. Now, does everybody agree that that reward is fair? That's another story. But still, with that risk comes reward. So uh, last year, the someone came to LinkedIn. So my advice to everyone is never say no to a LinkedIn connection. Hear what they got to say, and if it doesn't interest you, say nicely, thank you, not interested, but 
always say yes because you never know what grain of nuggets is going to come through. And it was someone from Haiti uh, working with the World Bank who came to me and said, would you be interested in bidding for this call that we're having? Uh, it's a World Bank-sponsored call for Haiti uh, looking to establish a blockchain solution. And I have to tell you, as a technology company, that's the best thing. It is always good when the customer knows what they want rather than you trying to sell them that they need this. So the government and also the World Bank had done some work for the last six years, and the last two years had been really coming to realization that the technology would be the best way to be able to bridge all the players that needed to participate and then to create what I believe the technology is best for, which is chain of custody and chain of ownership. So it allows the farmer to retain um, the ownership. So a lot of us have been looking at traceability, and this is where really for me it was a change uh, or an increase, or we could even say a pivot in ways which is much more beneficial. A lot of us look at traceability and look at the value of traceability, and there are very big values which are assuring for food safety, food security, and all those things. But then it becomes a customer choice because, or a company's choice of how transparent they want to be. But if the purpose of that transparency is to also maintain financial transparency and then allow for the individual who's got the first ownership to have a bigger share of the profit, obviously with also higher risk, it then makes for a much more transparent and fair system rather than some of the stuff that we have right now, whereby when it comes to agriculture, the farmer or the producer will take a discount. Also, because there is no evidencing that they are following the standards, those who follow are punished because those who don't follow do as well as they do. So now if you have a system which can evidence not only that you have proper ownership, but also that all standards along the journey have been maintained, and that if for some reason the standard is breached, the system automatically takes out that item from the ecosystem, you create better trust with the receiving parties, the buyers, which therefore allows for fairer prices, not only to the producer, but even to the customer, because now the buyer has less risk of spoilage, so therefore he does not need to take into account his pricing, not only for the good sold, but the good lost. Wow. Uh, fascinating insights there, um, uh, Jean-Vive. So uh, one of the, probably the, the the bit that resonates with me big time is the ownership aspect. Uh, and you mentioned uh, traceability is an important aspect there. But I think as you, as you, as you rightly pointed out, um, understanding the ownership of the food, uh, food item through its supply chain and trying to um, make sure that the farmers aren't exploited in the process as they are today is perhaps the biggest outcome 
and and uh, and uh, that that we can we can get out of this particular um, um, use case. I think. So on that note, I have a couple of questions for you. Um, mm -hmm. uh, large scale questions so you mentioned there are like uh, multiple people that have to come into uh, come into the uh, the network for this to work um, and and of course you you are working in um, Haiti with the world bank at the moment so uh, how far are we from really seeing this work um, in 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 um, in any kind of scale and what are your thoughts for the next 2 years 5 years what does your roadmap roadmap look like so in terms of uh, actually seeing the work in action, we are going to be live kicking, screaming, crying in August. And part of that has actually been also getting the logistic provider. So what happens is that as with every system, you need to have clarity and definition of roles. And that was something, one of the challenges was to get the logistic provider who normally has been logistic and buyer and, and a seller to actually become a pure logistic. This is not so far-fetched because now you have DHL, FedEx, and other companies playing those roles. So if we can get them to act, so the first thing was to get them to accept that, and part of their contract is also that they must use the system. Uh, we are expecting probably, by my estimation, we'll be seeing the second half of the year, uh, the equivalent of probably two hundred to five hundred thousand dollars worth of goods flowing through the system. Uh, the expectation is that within the next two years, there should be about fourteen million. With just looking at the fresh fruit value chain and the potential trade value of that could be exported from Haiti, is in the range of a hundred to one hundred sixty million dollars in the next five to ten years. Um, what we are looking to do is to solidify the Haiti uh, ecosystem and then move on to other jurisdictions. So my focus once um, I feel that the, the ground is well solid and everything is ready to go, to then start looking at other jurisdictions which can uh, use. And we have actually... Um, uh, potential in China. Uh, we have a B2B company which is doing rice selling. So there we move a bit away from working with government where the government is the only support but actually supporting specialized um, goods. And then we've also looked at the process because one of the things that we're doing in Haiti is we're removing contract farming. And I think contract farming is the biggest Achilles heel for farmers because it creates a, a contract at levels that are sometimes not sustainable for them because they may find that the market prices move and because they have a contract unable to move from there versus also if the market has moved down, they, don't ha they still have to deliver and many a time the contract is stacked against them where they will have to lose money. So if we can start moving more toward a sort of almost what we would call the Dutch market, the very much the same way as the flower market has, has moved, then it will become much fairer for everyone across uh, the ecosystem, which means when the fluctuation of prices, everyone is affected, not just one particular part 
of the uh, equation uh, in terms of the value chain. So going back to your question, in the next two years, I see really uh, being able to work with Haiti, where we're not only exporting to the U.S., but also bringing goods to the to the rest of the world, Europe, Asia, because the goods that they have are very special. Um, and Haiti was a supplier of most, so the island of Haiti, Hispaniola, was a supplier of most of the sugarcane um, between uh, 1400 to 1600. And it's very much written about, and that really was what created the wealth for Europe. So now it's time for the island to get back into this trade routes and actually prosper again, but prosper for herself. Then I think that if we are uh, able to really uh, nail this, as I expect we will, um, there are many other organizations and other uh, countries who have the same problem in that they're unable to get access to market because there is a view either that they're incapable of meeting the standards or that they don't have the ability to create the ecosystem with the logistics that is necessary. I think that if we also create those proper logistics, we will start creating better governance and a better peace in those countries because a lot of them have issues which are really geared toward unemployment and unrest because of lack of employment opportunities. That's great, Jean-Vive. I'm sure you'll be able to conquer the world in the next couple of years. I can I can see the the energy levels and uh, uh, and I think that there are some genuine problems you're trying to solve here, um, and and I hope Haiti is the is the first of many. Um, with that good note, I thank you for joining us and thank you for making time for uh, for our podcast, and I look forward to speaking you uh, speaking with you soon on other aspects as well. It was my pleasure and nice to meet you, Theo. Thank you, Jean-Pierre.